Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Bob Johnson. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Bob Johnson is the founder of BET Networks, an American entrepreneur, media mogul, philanthropist, investor, one of Lewis Carr's Waymakers, and America's first black billionaire. Today, he'll be discussing his career, ways America can level the economic playing field, and his advice to Waymaker listeners. Let's get started. Welcome, Bob. Hey, Lewis. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Bob, you've been called the ultimate entrepreneur, a true visionary. You're the founder of BET Networks. You're the founder of RLJ Lodging and Trust, which owns over 100 hotels around the world. You own RML Automotive Group, which has 35 dealerships. You're in the gaming business with Caribbean Gage Gaming Group in Puerto Rico. And the Urban Movie Channel, which you sold to AMC, but you still have some personal interest there. So clearly calling you the ultimate entrepreneur is, is not sort of misstating the facts. How does one get that type of vision, Bob? Is it inherent or is it learned? You know, Lewis, that's a question I get quite often is what makes an entrepreneur or what makes a visionary? And um, there's no easy answer. I, I, the one thing I could say is I don't think there's a, a school or a program that you can go to and say, I want to sign up to get a master's degree in visionary. Uh, I, I think it's something that is a little bit in your DNA, a little bit in the uh, forces around you, the, uh, the opportunities you get that you hadn't planned to get, and a little bit of what I call you know, luck. And I would throw in this, and I think this is something you would understand, Lewis, uh, by the grace of God. Uh, you are put in places that you don't expect to be. And when you're in those places, something motivates you to do something. And in my case, it was a, uh, a for a short history lesson, it was a, a, a man growing up as a, a one of 10 children, first to go to college. Uh, first to uh, get a master's degree. Uh, and from that, the opportunity uh, by, again, luck or serendipity, or whatever you want to, want to call it, to get introduced to the cable industry when the cable in its infancy was becoming a major media force in the US uh, economy and the US telecommunications world. And from that, meeting with people who saw something in you that maybe you didn't see, and people who said they're willing to take a chance on you and ultimately your vision about what you could do with help and support. And so out of that became uh, my success in, in BET. And from that, my success in the number of other businesses that you, you just outlined, that put me in that position of being called a, uh, I guess I would call myself a serial entrepreneur. But all of those forces, you, you can try to pick out which one was more defining, but it was all those forces that came together in an opportunity. And, and fortunately, I was able to take advantage of them. And that's sort of the quick snapshot of the Bob Johnson story. But Bob, the unique thing about you is it's so many different industries and a lot of them are not related so entertainment uh hotels uh gaming you could say gaming and entertainment is closely related but then uh autom automobile dealerships how so many different industries did you think that hey i can do that well you forgot to mention the first african-american that owned an nba franchise <laughs> uh, yeah yeah that's a big one <laughs> That's right. Well, Lewis, what happens is that I think this is where we go back to being a visionary. And 
to be honest, if you think about it, Lewis, all of those opportunities are somewhat related. So you get to the cable industry and you start Black Entertainment Television. You take Black Entertainment Public in 1991, becoming the first Black American to have a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange. Well, that leads you to be exposed to uh, people who say, hey, there's this Black guy who started this company, it's publicly traded. He has white investors, most of them, and he's recognized for creating a, a business like, quote, we in white America do. So therefore, he's somebody we should talk to about things. And out of that becomes board seats. So you get on boards and you get to know other people who are in a position to help you or who believe in you. And out of that comes opportunities to get in the automobile dealership business uh, with the gentleman, Mac McClarity, who was uh, Bill Clinton's chief of staff, who was in the car business. That brings me into creating the largest Black-owned automobile dealership with it. BET, you meet one of the top cable operators at the time, John Malone, who put the first half a million dollars into BET because you worked as a lobbyist for the cable industry. Out of that becomes a, a company that created the uh, Black millionaires throughout the, uh, uh, of uh, BET's existence, more than any other Black company had ever done. And, and that includes some of the, the legacy companies of Ebony and Jet and Black Enterprise and Essence. So all of these things bring you to the attention of people. They bring you in the attention of people who have capital. They bring you to the attention of people who have ideas that they want to do, engage in. And uh, that means you get an opportunity to say, I can help you do this, or I can lead this. And they get comfortable that you can do it. Capital comes together with ideas. Ideas come together with talent. Talent creates value. And so it's, it's pretty much the visionary entrepreneur is someone who is uh, by faith or by luck put in front of people who believe in what they say they can do. In other words, they believe the vision, they embrace the, the uh, person's goals and then put their support behind it. So since there's so the no man is an island concept and all of a sudden, you find yourself able to do things because forces, people, ideas all come together to allow you to uh, engage. And something in you says, I wanna do this. As much as somebody said to Sir Edmund Hillary, there's a mountain called Mount Everest. Do you wanna be the first to climb it? And he said, absolutely. You know, somebody said to the first person to want to become the uh, top black in a law, black law firm. You, he says, I want to be the first. And when that first comes about, it drives you to become and pursue other firsts. So Bob, I've heard you say being in the flow of the information, being in the, in the place where the deals flow through. Is, is that what you just described, putting yourself in positions where you will be in the flow of information to be able to take advantage of opportunities? Uh, Lewis, you're absolutely right. If you think about it, if you just sort of, you and your, your listeners think about what is it about all of the top black, I'd say high net worth, wealthy achievers, what is it that's a commonality in their ability to achieve their objectives? Somehow they got in the deal flow. And the deal flow in, in America means that at some point, a black American has come in contact with a white American to bring the assets that has made white Americans successful to a black American to see if they can deploy those assets to achieve something for themselves and their family and the people who work with them. That's the deal flow. So I meet John Malone. John Malone's a cable operator. He has cable system. He needs black programming. I have an idea. He has capital. He puts his capital behind me, $500,000 that led to a $4 billion business when sold. That's the deal flow. 
Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player in the world. He has a, a opportunity to be introduced to Phil Knight at Nike. Nike sees in Michael an ability not only to be a great basketball player, but a great marketing brand. And out of that comes Brand Jordan. Oprah Winfrey, you know, talented individual, come up from Hardcastle, you know, Hard Times, Mississippi, sort of like where I came from. But she had this ability to just engage and invigorate people by her personality. She meets the King brothers. If you know in syndication back in the day, Lewis, syndication was the way black programs got on television. There wasn't that so much on the network. They put the King brothers back Oprah Winfrey show in syndication. And out of that, the rest is history. She becomes a dominant force in entertainment and talk show host and, late, and, and, and also in the ownership and creation of a cable network. So the thread that once runs true through all of these interactions is that someone in the majority population embraced the black American who had talent, who had entrepreneurial spirit, visionary beliefs and said, I'm gonna do business with you. And that's what happens every day in white America. It just doesn't happen every day in black America. So you can go down every list, you can throw in Magic Johnson, you know, great basketball player like Michael, adopted by people to, to get into business with him, everything from baseball teams to uh, uh, movie theaters at the time. So that, that thread is what runs true. Uh, and if you believe in that, you ask yourself, why doesn't it happen on a regular basis to ordinary people? And the reason is that uh, white America has yet to come to grips with the idea that every black American, not just the Bob Johnson, Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey's magic and, and so on, deserve an opportunity, a chance to prove that they can create value, create wealth, and be a part of the economic system of this uh, capitalistic economy. So, so speaking of that, Bob, in May of 2020, uh, the world woke up with the death of George Floyd. And then Black America woke up the world. And from that, a lot of corporations made pledges, not only to their own internal companies, but they made pledges to Black America, that they were going to do better. They were going to invest. Uh, uh, they were going to create jobs and opportunities and all of these pledges were made by some of the biggest companies in this country. Have they executed on those pledges? Have they kept them in general? Well, Lewis, if you look at the data and it's been published in various newspapers and media sources, they have not. I saw something uh, on, online that said there was some in the aggregate some $50 billion in pledges made as a result of George Floyd's murder, but not so much the, the murder, but white Americans search to come to grips with how they respond to tragic events in black America to help make up for something they realized they should have done long time, a long time ago and should have confronted in a strategic way, the way they do with every business that they run, to look at where have we failed and therefore we're gonna address it. So unfortunately, some of this is what I would call knee-jerk reaction to something that happens affecting black Americans, causing white Americans to question, what have we done wrong? Where have we failed and what we can do? And knee-jerk reaction to a problem is not a business. It's not a strategic effort. It's an emotional behavior. And what happens with emotional behavior is it starts at a high, but without a long-term plan, it invariably drifts to a low. And that's why hundreds of millions of dollars of those edges have not been expensed in 
Black America in the Black community. Now, so my thing is that, uh, and I've said this on television, that white America should create a verification committee made up of represented with uh, Black Americans and others based on their disciplines, some in business, some in finance, some in uh, social program, and, and ask them to say, we made these pledges. Maybe it was uh, emotionally driven, but we really mean it. And they should ask this group, we, we want you to evaluate our performance and give us not only an, an update on how we're doing in the performance that we made, you didn't force us to do it, we made it voluntarily. Uh, why don't you give us a report as to how we're doing on our, on, on our commitment and then at the same time, give us guidance, advice and direction how we can fulfill the pledge that we voluntarily made, driven by George Floyd's death or driven by a long uh, lingering desire to do something to bring black Americans into the equal, equal treatment in the economic system. Whatever was the, the cause, you help us fulfill our 50 billion or so in pledges and then monitor the impact and the effect of those. That to me, which would say that these companies are serious in their intent. As you know, Lewis, every publicly traded company goes before Wall Street investors and on a quarterly basis, report on their performance. If they say we're gonna generate this much in earnings, they have to report on it and explain or why they didn't. If they say that their share price is going to go up by this, we're projecting an increase in share price. If, the, if they perform it, Wall Street rewards them. If they don't, Wall Street can take advantage by selling off their stock. So they're used to that idea of verifying their commitments. I said to uh, on CNBC, this is no different here. You make a commitment to put money to work in the Black community, you agree to report on it quarterly or you know, every six months, whatever you want to do. And then if you don't, present your plan to address why you failed to perform. The, Wall Street does, every company in America does this every quarter. So if you really believe that these programs, uh, your commitments, both internally and externally, as you pointed out, are gonna be implemented, then you shouldn't be afraid to verify. So, Bob, should this initiation come from outside groups or should this come from the NASDAQ or the Dow or uh, some other governing body? How should this get started or how can it get started? Well, I, I think it should get started in, in all those places you just described, Louis. As, as you know, right now, the state of California has said to every company that's headquartered in California, you must, not you shall, you must, uh, not you may, may try, you must have X number of women as a percentage on your board. You must have on your board certain members who are part of disadvantaged classes, however it's defined. And so it can come there. The companies now from the NASDAQ, and others are making what they call ESG, environmental, sustainable, and, uh, and governance, or equitable and sustainability and governance, a part of how they measure. Large companies that manage funds of stocks in these companies, like BlackRock, are saying, unless you show that you performed in ESG, we may tell our investors that we want to invest in you. You know, there are companies that want to invest in, in uh, coal, mining business because they think it's, it's a, a threat to the climate. So there's an easy way to do it if companies really wanted to do it. Uh, you've seen uh, often, uh, I don't know if they still print them out, but back in the day, some of the large magazines or publications would produce a, uh, a list, best companies to work for for minorities, best companies to work for for women. And they would ask the companies to give them data to to put them in a position of being 
on the list or off the list. So what I proposed simply was this, and I told him I would take the role in leading and I'd ask people like you to join me in it. Create a group of 10, 12 people. You, the company, submit their pledges to us or what they say they were gonna do. And we work with them to say, okay, how are you doing this quarter? How are you doing this year? And when they're not performing, we have the right, as part of our understanding, to publish which companies are meeting their uh, personally committed objectives. So it can come from the government. I would have no problem if the, if the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange uh, said to companies, hey, if you're going to make these pledges on socially relevant things you're going to do, then allow us to ask you to report them in your quarterly report. Allow us to ask you to put it in your annual report. Now, some companies do that, but there's no enforcement behind it or no uh, you know, responsibility behind it. Uh, and so I think those things would make people do I'm gonna say what they really wanna do, but there's nothing like a little bit of uh, encouragement in the form of disclosure, uh, commitment to perform as measured by an outside uh, group to make companies do what I'm gonna assume that they really wanna do. And if they really wanna do it, having a little bit of uh, what I'd call uh, soft encouragement in the form of transparency, best practices, public awareness, wouldn't hurt at all. So Bob, a lot of banks during that time also made pledges to sort of help entrepreneurs start small businesses. But I'll be honest, I don't know anybody who has a business that got their money from a bank. Is that realistic in today's world? It's really difficult, Lewis. Uh, Banks are created to make loans that first and foremost protect their depositors. The banks just don't, you know, venture capital funds make loans to take risk. Private equity guys make take loans to take risk because they're not holding people's deposits. They're holding shareholders' investment, but they're not deposits regulated by everything from the FDIC to the Treasury Department. Um, and so it is very tough when banks says we want to make loans to minority businesses because minority businesses, for the most part, don't have the same capital structure as other businesses. They don't have the wealth. Uh, they may not even have the training and they certainly may not have any security capital to protect or secure the loan. You know, when you look at a world where in the United States, white Americans have a net worth of wealth, 10 times that of black Americans. The median net wealth or net income, if you have, because most black people's uh, wealth is based in income, uh, is $17,000. That's the median net income of a black household. White households have a median net income of approximately $170,000. So how many people, if you assume the median is the average, uh, how many black people can walk into a bank and say, I wanna borrow, it's a simple amount of money, $100,000. And they say, what is your net worth to secure this loan? Say, I've got $17,000 of median net worth and I want to buy $100,000. That's almost a 10 to 1 ratio of debt or 15 to 1 ratio of debt to what we call equity. No, no banks makes loans on that basis because there's nothing to secure. And if you add into that, Blacks lag behind in home ownership, which is the primary asset that most middle income and um, uh, Americans own, black or white. If you don't have a home, you don't have anything to secure borrowing, no bank is going to make you a loan. And a lot of these programs, Lewis, they were announced in press releases by, by the senior management of the bank and say, we're going to do this. But at the same time, they charge 
the lower level management people, the lenders, the auditors who make loans, the risk assessment people to make loans, their charge of doing that according to bank requirements never change. No bank has ever said, we're gonna put a billion dollars of loans in the black community. And by the way, we're gonna throw out all of the requirements of the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, all the requirements of our regulators, all the requirements that we must have in order to protect the deposits that we get, which is the primary source of their income for earnings and uh, investments. So it's a contradictory uh, thing. And, and the other thing I'll say about some of these press releases, I've seen them go out. I've never seen them have a name of a person that you should call to pursue your loan application. They just say the bank will do it. And then can you imagine calling JP Morgan Chase? What number would you use to reach JP Morgan Chase? And what number would you use to reach Bank of America? What number would you use to reach these large money center banks, cities, uh, city bank, city bank? If you were just a regular guy or woman trying to borrow, it's a typical black startup business is looking to borrow somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty to hundred thousand dollars. You're gonna call Citibank and say, "I want to speak to the loan department about a hundred. First of all, you may not even get a person; you probably get a you know a voice machine. So, no. The, the, if if these if these companies in the U.S. economy are serious about moving wealth in the black community, there are ways to do it. But it means that they've got to be willing to restructure some of the requirements of a bank whose sole source is profit maximization and, and not just basically saying we're going to give, we're going to make. Now, I'm not saying these loans would be bad, but if you start with the idea that they're not effective, it's going to be a tough thing. That's why I sort of put in for Congress something uh, called the Boost Act which uh, would set aside $30 billion of tax certificates or tax preferences to companies that would make loans or investments in black businesses. It would work simply like this. If a company believed that a black business had potential, they could invest in that business and go to the treasury department and say, if this business hits and it's successful, I get a reduction in my capital gains return on that business. That, that way it would do two things. Companies who really want to do this would be, you know, they would be, have a chance to fulfill their personal goal objective. And two, they would have a hedge against failure because if they were successful, the returns would be so great to mitigate the risk because they wouldn't have to pay the higher tax rate on that tricky or what they would call risky investment. And so it's, it's, these things can be done. We do it all the time. Companies go to go to uh, cities and say, I want to build a stadium. I want to do this. And the city says, okay, we'll give you tax preferences. We'll, we'll build the roads and the bridges for you to get there. We will give you a deduction in your taxes if you hire this number of people. All of these things are not new. They just have not been fully deployed to move capital and move wealth into the Black community. Bob, one of the other big hurdles for uh, African-Americans is the cost of a college education. Uh, it's a hurdle for just about everybody. But if you say that it's a 24-inch hurdle for white America, for Black America, it's at least a 36-inch hurdle. What can African-Americans do to sort of get their education in this particular time where money is so tight? I know you've talked about reparations in one form or another. What are what is some things right now that young people who may be listening to this podcast say, I wanna go to school, but I don't have any money? Uh, Lewis, I'm not gonna put it on the young people. I'm not gonna put it on uh, poor families. I'm not gonna put it on middle-income families, black families. I'm gonna put it on the political leadership in the black community. The black community, in my opinion, has not lived up to its responsibilities of 40 million black Americans in this country. 
The Congressional Black Caucus has probably in excess of 56, maybe 60 members who are all in districts that are more likely than not to always be reelected because they're sort of designed or redistricted in a way that they have a maximum black population against whites. And for that part, most of them have a maximum number of Democrat voters. Now, you and I know, and everybody listening know, this country is terribly divided politically, almost in a caustic way between Democrats and Republicans. So let's say the Democrats who are predominantly white Democrats in the Congress and Republicans who are predominantly white Republicans in the Congress, they're always fighting each other. There is in that process a balance of power. And that balance of power would be 50 plus members of the Congressional Black Caucus who could choose to side with either side based on their political best interests of Black people. That is how the Congressional Black Caucus was founded. In the 1970s, when about 20 or 17 members of the Congressional Black Caucus was formed, they adopted this philosophy. And they said that Black Americans, black, by that they meant Black voters, should have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. We walked away from that. Right now, Nancy Pelosi, who's a Speaker of the House, has a four vote margin in being the Speaker of the House. I.e., if four votes shifted one way, she could be removed from being Speaker. They all became, moved over and became Republicans. Now, 56 Black Americans in a dispute between the Democrats and the Republicans could say, which of you is going to give us an answer to lack of financial uh, access for college education? Which of you is going to give us a police reform bill that we want? Which of you is gonna give us a housing program that we want? And the one that says, raise your hand, say, I'll do it. They move their votes on, on, on legislation to that particular party. That's what you call balance of power. We have the power in a, in a democratic uh, system of electoral votes. I mean, of votes based on uh, legislation in the House and the Senate. We don't have it in the Senate, we have it in the House. Then the answer is simple. If Black Americans move towards becoming somewhat of an independent thinking party, not an appendage of the Democrat Party, not an appendage of the Republican Party, but of an independent party. They could control legislation coming out of the House and do it at no risk. Because how many times, and I'll ask your listeners to think about it, how many times has a sitting Black congressperson, man or woman, been run out of office by another black person running against them. You go back and look at the legislative long, the, the longevity of blacks in the legislature, even at state level and even certainly at congressional level, they very seldom get run out of office by a competitive black uh, candidate. Maybe you lose because of something happens, but it's not because they get defeated in election in a very closed district that is almost overwhelmingly black. So there's no fear of being kicked out of office by the left wing of the black party, the right wing of the black party, very seldom does it happen. So now you've got a opportunity to wield your power for black people. So every problem that black people face, access to capital, access to housing, access to education, access to greater job opportunity, 
really rests not in the hands of a young 18-year-old kid struggling whose parents got $17,000 medium network to get to college, or a, you know, a young entrepreneur trying to find $50,000 lending to start a business. No, you can't expect them to solve that problem. That problem can be solved the way all the problems in this country are solved, or all the way money is spent in this country, by the legislature. And the legislature we have is the Congressional Black Caucus. Some are doing it, some are aggressively doing it. Kwasi and Fume was supportive of me on the uh, boost act. Congressman Jim Clyburn is a huge force, third ranking Democrat, but they're not doing it as a unified group. They're not taking, they're not taking their full power potential and deploying it in a way to become the balance of power to return to the philosophy no permanent friends. No, we're not locked in the Democrat Party. No permanent enemies. We hate the Republicans. Permanent interests. You do what we think is uninterest, our votes go with you. You don't do what we think is uninterest, our votes go against you. That's power. That's power that's being wasted. So, Bob, basically you're saying that the power is in our vote. If we want change, go to the bold and vote your interest. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's, that's the whole thing. And you, want, you know the old saying, elections have consequences? You got, like I said, the House of Representatives has a four vote spread between Democrats and Republicans. Now you tell me if the Republicans are voting against something, and the Black Caucus said to the Democrats, on this issue, this one issue, we're going to go to Republicans unless you do what we want done. Believe it or not, the desire of people to stay in power will change dramatically when they see another powerful force threatening their continued existence. We do not threaten people's political existence. We tend to go along to get along. And that's a shame. And 40 million Black Americans suffer from that tendency to go along and get along when we have all of this power. I mean, Joe Biden is president because of one Black man said, I'm going to deliver you South Carolina. One Black man said, I'm going to deliver you South Carolina. But today, what can black people point to? So Bob, most of the wealth in this country for black Americans have been created in sports, franchisees, hair care, media, and real estate. What is the next frontier for black Americans to create wealth? Lewis, I think the next if, next frontier, to understand what's the next frontier, you got to go back and look at what was the first beginning of how Black wealth came about in this country. Black wealth, and I don't mean a job. I, I, you know, I believe I have greater respect for people who work. My parents worked all their lives to take care of 10 kids. But Black wealth usually comes from three places. First, it comes from Black people who can do things that white people can't do, but white people can make money off of. Boxers, singers, actors and actresses. White people can't do you know, money made with but they can make money with money made with. So that's one. The other place where black wealth came from is doing something black people would not do other than because they go to jail. Drug dealers, people who rob people. That's the other group. And the third group is black people who did things that white people wouldn't do because they thought it was culturally inappropriate for them to do. Cut black hair. Black barbers, open up that, going up, 
Black people in the black shop, not a lot of white people. Funeral home directors. Remember when funeral home directors used to be the most influential black people in the community? Because white people wouldn't bury black people. And you know this as well as I do, because we lived it. Black hair care manufacturers. White people didn't want to be involved with black hair care. So black people came along and said, we know how to make black hair for black people. Black people bought it because they wanted to do the hair. Now, when you add that to other things, black publications a little bit, used to be a, a major black on white owned magazines called Life, the Saturday Evening Post, Look Magazine, who could have covered the rise of the black middle class. They didn't want to do it. So what happened? The great John Johnson said, I want to chronicle black people as they moved in the middle class. So he started publishing Ebony and Jet. And I wanted to be a voice for black people when they were not covered in the various magazines. White people could have done it. They didn't do it. But ultimately, they started to do it. All of a sudden, the black hair companies, the soft sheens, the pro lines, all of them were bought up by white companies. All of a sudden, all the top black artists who started in the record business were bought up. And even to this day, I have to say it, BET was bought up by Viacom. So the answer to the question is the same as it's always been. If you are not able to present an economic opportunity that can be embraced by people with money and wealth who want to be a part of it, I want to be a great movie producer and writer, you'll find every studio looking for it. Just all you got to do is call NetJet, I mean, uh, Netflix, and say, Netflix, how much money have you put into, how much did President Obama get for the movies he's going to make? How much did you know other producers get for the projects that they're gonna create? You gotta come to the table with ideas that can be embraced by people with wealth. Now, what ideas would be embraced by people with wealth? Obviously, there are some industries that are growing rapidly. The technology sector is one of them. The uh, social media sector is another. Uh, the healthcare sector is another. People are going to be living longer. People are going to live longer. They want to have a quality of life. So healthcare, uh, style of life, living, recreation, entertainment, travel, all of these things are going to be growth industry. But what you have to have, you got to start with an idea. Let me just say this to all your listeners who are out there. There is plenty of money in the US economy, in the global economy, plenty of dollars. But it's not the dollars that drive you to success until you have the idea to, to put those dollars to work. So to me, the answer is, think of those, those, those uh, sectors of the economy that are called growth. And, Try to find that source of capital, that source of support to have you do it. Now, one of the things that we have to do is we've got to change a little bit of attitudes about can black people manage money? So many white companies feel that black people, no matter how much I want to help you, I don't believe you can manage well. That's why the number of blacks who are chief financial officers of publicly traded companies on Wall Street is about three, two percent. And a chief financial officer is the next step to being a CEO. But a lot of people don't believe black people are managers of wealth. So we don't get those positions. The same thing in, in fund managers and, and, and stockbrokers. We there is a sense, if you want to talk about what is the greatest form of systemic racism in America, I, I I think some of the things that you would normally think of have been eradicated. Open housing, access to public transportation, access to public accommodations, right to vote. The greatest form of systemic racism is a belief by the broad society 
that black people are not capable of creating wealth. We can be a source of wealth by our talent or our ability, but we're not creators of wealth. Therefore, when you look at what are some of the great technology things that created these great geniuses, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Apple, you know, um, all these companies that you use every day, you know, Lyft, and all these ride hailing service get, get, uh, economies that have come up that we aren't participating in, the gig economy, we're not participating in. Ideas first, capital second. But if they don't believe you can come up with the idea, and more importantly, even if you do, we don't believe you can manage it, you're not going to be the next Zuckerberg. You, you're not going to be the Jack Dorsey. You're not going to be the Reed Hastings who runs Netflix. I mean, think about it. Netflix started out by shipping out videotapes to people's homes. This is a simple business. The mail, the U.S. mail did the delivery. They shipped it. They destroyed Blockbuster, who said we'd like people to come into the store and drive to the local market or neighborhood shopping mall and pick up a video, take, take it home. Great idea. Got access to capital. And I know that for a fact. BET, great idea. Got access to capital. Without access to capital from John Malone, that first half a million dollars, no way would I be sitting here as the founder of Black Entertainment Television. So, but a lot of that goes with focusing on where we think we should put our power. We tend to put our power, in my opinion, in fighting the 30 year ago civil rights war. And as much as I believe in access to the ballot and the right to vote and passing the John Lewis voting rights bill, I'll tell you this, I would put, if it were me, I put more focus on passing a bill that caused capital to flow dramatically and significantly into the hands of Blacks with ideas on how to generate wealth, jobs, and economic opportunity. That's just my opinion. I'm a, and it's probably because I'm a business guy. I've never been a social activist guy. But I don't, I, you know, I've been voting ever since I was the right to vote. 20, I have never been denied the right to vote. And, I, and I've never heard my parents who grew up in the heart of Hickory, Mississippi, say that they didn't deny the right to vote. And I'm sure there are people who are denied the right to vote. And I'm sure there are people who can't come up with an ID. And I'm sure there are people who can't get all work in time. I can think of a hundred reasons why it delays or limits your right to get to the ballot. But I do not believe those things can't be overcome and much faster than I, you can overcome the flow of capital. The most precious, and people say the vote is the most precious thing. It is. If, if the power that comes from deploying of the ballot is properly utilized, it is the most powerful commodity that an American, Black American, could possess. But if that power is not used of the vote to result in, in economic wealth creation and economic growth, then I'm not sure that's the best deployment of power. I would say we should focus on how do we get the, the mother's milk of economic success in this country into the hands of Black people, and that's capital. Get wow. more wealth in the Black community, you get a lot of problems can be solved. All you got to do is ask white Americans. A lot of problems can be solved by having money. And last thing I would say is this. One, one thing we don't realize, people talk about stress and stress in the black community. And the fact, fact that we get discriminated against and therefore we have stress. 
In America, in a capitalist society, stress is born from not having the economic wherewithal to care for your family in times of calamity. That's stress. So if you have you know, $50 million and your roof leaks, you're not stressed because you get it fixed. If you got $25 million and your refrigerator goes out, you ain't stressed. You got $10 million and one of your family members in the hospital, you ain't stressed. But if you got $17,000 and your roof leaks, you got a lot of stress. You got stress because you can't go to work because the roof leaks. You got to be there when the guy comes fix it. You got more stress when they sell you, it's going to cost you $5,000 to fix the roof. That's more, that's stress. And that comes from being economically discriminated against. Because if I got $50,000, I mean, if I got $50 million, nine out of 10 times, I'm not worried about voting. And if I'm certainly ain't worried about getting there, because I got that money, I just call my driver, tell him to come pick me up, take me to the voting place. And if the boss say I can't get off of work and I got $50 million, I say, work. <laughs> I'm not coming back. <laughs> so uh, the point I'm trying to make is that things we, we too often fight those battles that in some ways, certain elements of the liberal white community want us to focus on. It says, focus on getting more people to write the vote so they don't have to show their ID. Maybe they can use their, uh, get this, use their Netflix account. Why would you be worried about somebody having a Netflix account as a reason to show that they're a citizen entitled to vote? First of all, they probably shouldn't have a Netflix account if they can't figure out how to get to the polling place to vote. But that's the way we're running things. And then that's all of these things are in some of the legislation. Use your Netflix account as a proof of ID. All that proves that you're sending money, $12 a month to Netflix. Don't prove you know anything about voting. So a lot of those okay. things, uh, I think, we, we tend to fight the last wars. And to your point about economic success and where should it go? they should start thinking about fighting the, the future war. And the future war is which society has access to more capital. That's gonna be the winner. Wow, Bob, thank you for this. You've given us uh, a lot of advice and clearly have given us a path to success, uh, whether it's in entrepreneurship, access to capital, the next frontier. So we appreciate everything you've told us today. And we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Bob Johnson. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 